Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 33, The Death Eaters. Voldemort looked away from Harry and began examining his own body. His hands were like large, pale spiders. His long white fingers caressed his own chest, his arms, his face, the red eyes. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My mother is an exceptionally wise woman. And so when I was eight or nine, I was in this wonderful Waldorf school, a Steiner school, which is very creative and play engaged and out in the natural world and artistic. And it it was pretty alternative. And so my mom was like, you know, that's great. And also you should engage with the real world. So why don't you join the Cub Scouts? The Cub Scouts, as you'll remember, is very inspired by the military, actually has a strong connection to the military. And so the idea of uniform and ritual is really ingrained into the culture of the Cub Scouts. So you have to salute, you have to make a pledge to serve the queen and all of that kind of thing. And you have a woggle and this kind of little scarfette that you tie around your neck. The woggle holds it all together. And there was a kind of like a green sweater that you had to wear and dark gray, more formal pants. And so my mom was going to get the uniform. And there it was. I think it was a Tuesday night, you know, 7 p.m. And there's these like older people who run the group. One of them is called Akela, ritually, for some very colonial, unfortunate reason. And Akela was there. And the three of us who were joining that week stepped forward. But did I have the right uniform? No. My mother had forgotten to get it. And so I was standing there amongst all of these boys who were all wearing the same thing, green sweater, gray trousers with a woggle and a scarf. And there I am in like a full on gray tracksuit, just basically crying on the inside. I felt so humiliated. And of course, to my mom, it was like just another thing with four children and a business and a hundred other things to do probably ordering this uniform had not been the highest priority and it just didn't feel necessary. But to me, this was like the most foundational moment of being like, I don't fit in and everything is awful. It highlighted for me reading this chapter that we have different understandings of what is necessary. You know, because what is necessary is all about what we deem important, what we place value in, what we really are all about. It's not funny, Vanessa. This was a deeply traumatizing moment. (laughs) I'm just picturing you in a gray sweatshirt, and I think it's so cute. And I'm picturing of you, you like, mad at your mom, and I think it's so cute. Everything about this is adorable to me. Um, I think that that's right. I think that there are certain things that we all agree are necessities. But, yeah, what we all need from one another and from the world is quite different. And we should be trying to take care of one another's needs. Casper, do you have everything that's necessary for your 30-second recap? Well, I read the chapter. And you have your wits? I have my wits about me. Wonderful. I go first today, though. You do? You get a little break. Okay. The clock starts in three, two, one, go. 
Harry's in a lot of pain. Wormtail's in a lot of pain. Voldemort's like, I'll give you back your hand to Wormtail. All the Death Eaters come back. There are holes in where certain Death Eaters are missing, and we sort of go around and we do like a... I can only think of the Hebrew word, cheshbon, of, like, who's there and who's not. And um, and then Voldemort does this, like, expository, like, backstory evil villain. You think it's sort of right before, like, the good guy's going to come shoot him because he's doing so much explaining about, like, what he did and how he hid. Now he's back. He's back. He's back. Cheshbon, <laughs> attendance. I love that. Isn't it funny sometimes that you have the word from a different language before you have it in your first language? I could not. Cheshbon. Casper, are you ready? Yes. Three, two, one. So Voldemort has arisen. It's amazing. He steps out of the cauldron. He's like, robe me. And he touches his body. And then Wormtail's like, okay, here's my, please fix my hand. And, and Voldemort's like, no, your other hand, girl. And so then he calls all the Death Eaters from the um, the tattoo, which is becoming black. And so all these people arrive. And then Avery's like, forgive me, and gets cruci- crucified. No, you know the word, crucioed. And then Harry gets crucioed, which is super intense. Um, and then, um, you know, he tells the whole story about Tom Riddle's dad and the bones and like, just like your mom. Mother, and now I'm too strong. Now I'm too strong. Too strong. I also like that you love Robe Me so much that even though it's in the previous chapter, you included it in this 30 second recap. It's so necessary. He's like getting ready for the Met Gala. He's like, just put me in my best Catholic heavenly bodies gown. <laughs> So, Vanessa, we've got this fascinating theme of necessity as we deal with this pretty dark chapter of the Death Eaters all returning together with Lord Voldemort. Where did you see it stand out for you? What did we learn about necessity? Well, first of all, just sort of like a meta comment, I think it was really interesting to read this chapter through the theme of necessity because I'm not sure what better theme there could have been to get me into Voldemort's mindset, to create a little bit of empathy, not for him as a person, but for the way that he thinks. Because so much of what he's doing is necessary from his point of view. Even when he crucios Avery, it's awful and it's torture. And again, I don't respect his point of view. But if you have been powerless and you are trying to demonstrate, and now I have power again, like it's necessary to demonstrate that power. That's so interesting because I was wondering why does he crucio Avery and then not do anything to anyone else? And that actually would make sense as a strategy that it was more about demonstrating his power more than it was about retribution to something specific that Avery did. Right. Avery just like prostrates himself. And I think that he's just like, okay, you're the first person to sort of volunteer in front of me, and I need to immediately demonstrate that I am now at my full powers and not afraid to punish. Right, which is also why he needs Harry Potter to be there. There's this epic moment where he says, I couldn't even touch him, right? We remember from book one where Voldemort tries to touch Harry's skin and and he burns. And now this finger, this white finger goes up to Harry's face and touches him. And it's this moment of, look, I have my full powers back. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that. That's so interesting that you point out that he only touches him with his finger. I wonder if he's testing (gasps) it. Yes. Right? If he was like, last time I burnt the heck out of my hand, (laughs) I went full palm, and that was a mistake. (laughs) So I'm going to, like, just barely touch you to see if it burns. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. This is really a moment of discovery, and it's a moment of testing boundaries and limits. I mean, he's literally testing loyalty by calling the Death Eaters back to see who will return 
because this is a necessary part of his strategy is to understand who's with me and who's not. I want to stay with this piece around his body, though, because this is a really important moment. I mean, he calls it his rebirth party. I love it. <laughs> like in the late 90s, early 2000s, when people were having weddings for themselves. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's like, yes, that's a new party. Right. Or like divorce parties is now a thing, right? Like he's like rebirthing parties. But he's so thrilled to have his body back because his body is a symbol of power. And we know that for Voldemort, it's all about overcoming death. And he's done that now. So there's something about him that's even stronger than ever before that I think he wants to demonstrate. And so the Crucio curse on Avery itself is something he would have done 13 years ago. But touching Harry is like even more powerful. I am wondering what we think of his goal of Mm. immortality. Because to some extent, this is the goal of most religions. It's to rise again. Mm. I mean, in Judaism, the idea is that the Messiah will come and that people will rise from the dead. In Christianity, it's Jesus will return and there will be a second coming and we will all rise from the dead. And then in other religions, there's an idea of reincarnation or of eternity and a next life. And so this is a very human desire And obviously, he's going about it in this completely monstrous way. But there's just something to me that's obviously, like, existentially true about this quest that he's on. Yeah, I think that's what makes Voldemort such a powerful character for us, because there's something in us that wants that, too. And I think what he's so terrified about is that he will be forgotten, that he's not important, that he is insignificant in some way. Like, he wants to be necessary in the story of history. And his way to do that is to become this malevolent force. This is not a desire to stay with life because life is so meaningful. It's a running from death because death is so terrifying. A friend of mine just told me a story about a big crush she had in high school, and she was really mean to the boy. And she said that the reason she was so mean to him was because the only way she could get herself to matter to him was by having him hate her. Okay, who is this friend? Because I have done the same thing. It's the same thing, right? It's like, if I need to be written in history for being a heinous monster, I will be in history. This is what I did with my high school, too. I was like, you will not forget me. I'm going to distribute a burn book. I think we've all done that in much smaller ways, perhaps. And it's also a testing of boundaries. I mean, there's part of what Voldemort is doing with the creation of these multiple Horcruxes, which is no one has ever done this before. Like, he wants to test what's possible, which, you know, really does not take a huge leap of imagination to compare this to Silicon Valley in terms of what people are doing with merging robotics with human bodies and planning to live for 200 years. There's the same urge of wanting to test the limits of science and the limits of humanity, which in some ways can be beautiful because it leads to developments in modern science and things like that. But there's something very troubling that sits underneath it about an unwillingness to accept what is. Yeah, and it's really hard to tell with science or exploration, right? People like Fritz Haber, who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry because he invented something that would allow crops to grow more quickly and is most likely why, like, there hasn't been mass famine in the world. He ended up creating weapons in World War I with that same invention. 
And then in World War II, it got turned into Zyklon B, which is what killed millions of people in concentration camps. So we need to keep exploring and we need to keep learning about science, but then we also just have to be careful. So maybe it is that like the way that you do it matters. Talking about rising again because you are a good person and Jesus comes back News alert is different than murdering and creating horcruxes. <laughs> like just because the desires are the same doesn't mean that the methodology doesn't matter. I'm with you. And I feel like there's another layer to this, which is there's the question of what's right and what's wrong. But then there's also the question of what's effective because he treats people like things. As soon as they don't have to show up anymore, no one's going looking for him in an Albanian forest. There's no loyalty of the kind of depth that he desires to really be effective. He has to be in hiding for 13 years and randomly finds Quirrell. And what was really interesting in that speech that he gives to Harry and to the Death Eaters is his lowest moment wasn't after his initial defeat to Harry. It was after the first defeat at Hogwarts when he's inhabited Quirrell's body and he again has to go into hiding because at that point he's like, well, I know no one's coming to look for me. And so I feel like Voldemort's getting a bit of payback in the sense that he has treated people in this very utilitarian way without any care or relationship. And now he's left on his own. So it, it feels like there's a strategic angle to this as well as a moral one. Yeah, you're so Slytherin. <laughs> I'm like, I would do it if it worked. <laughs> this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. 
Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Casper, is there somewhere else that you saw this theme of necessity? Yeah, I feel like I'm still really thinking about Voldemort and his body. We've talked before about when he's creating Horcruxes, like is a piece of his humanity ebbing out of his body? And as he's re-embodied in this scene, he is human, but also not quite. He has these red eyes. He has these kind of snake-like nostrils. He has these fingers that are longer and spider-like. So he is human and he's not. And my question is, like, where is that boundary of being human and being not human? And in the back of my mind, I am thinking again about these kind of advances in robotics and artificial intelligence. And I'm just really sitting with that, like, when are we human and when are we not? Yeah, I mean, and we have these questions in all different places in life. Often babies, once they're born, people joke that it's the fourth trimester. Right. They are obviously human, but you literally have to teach them how to suck for survival. Like, they don't know how to do anything anything on their own. But we wouldn't argue that they are not human. Right. And then when somebody is brain dead, what questions are we asking about care? Mm. And then, you know, I'm also thinking about the things that technology allows us to do, things like palliative amputations. If Mm. somebody is in constant limb pain, it is often actually easier for them to get that limb amputated. And now we have such sophisticated prosthetics, that that person lives a more pain-free life. Mm. So I think our ideas about these things change over time. They change with technology. They change as we understand. Something that I'm very interested in is that in England, in the criminal justice system, they are starting to question whether or not having had lead paint as a child has impacted your brain development in criminal cases. And that's another situation where It gets to the heart of, like, this other question that we were asking, which is, like, what is personal responsibility and what is your body fating you to do? And I think that these were really important questions. If somebody was severely abused as a child, then we should think about any crime that they commit differently, right? I've always wanted to go back to the orphanage in which then Tom Riddle was being raised And I have to ask the question, well, first of all, was there lead paint, but was there something even more severe in terms of mistreatment and abuse to help us understand his actions today? It feels like that's a question worth asking. But this broader question of what is necessary for us to be human feels like something that is going to change as technology changes, which is an interesting and a slightly terrifying notion. Vanessa, did this theme of necessity show up anywhere else for you in the text? Yeah. So one of the things that this podcast has really taught me a lot about is the idea of forgiveness. And I feel like I have a more nuanced idea of what that is. And I'm reading up for another project about atonement and forgiveness right now. So it's on my mind. And so I want to think about it in terms of this moment. And this is right after Voldemort has tortured Avery. And he says, get up, Avery. Stand up. 
you ask for forgiveness. I do not forgive. I do not forget. Mm. 13 long years. I want 13 years repayment before I forgive you. I mean, we always do this, right? We talk about forgiveness and punishment a lot together. And I think what I've learned through the process of this podcast is that I think forgiveness is one of the great humane projects. Mm. And it's one of the projects I want to work on in my life is being a forgiving person. I'm working on an email to someone right now that's basically like, I forgive you. I am so sorry for anything that I've done. And I don't think we should be in each other's lives because this person is fairly abusive to me regularly. And like my life is better when they are not in it. And it's a very hard email to (laughs) write and to send. And I don't know if I'm going to be strong enough or forgiving enough to actually send it. But it's an important thing, I think, for me to be working on. And I think that the desire for punishment in order to forgive, that we believe that if they suffer as much as I did, then I will be able to forgive them, is a completely natural feeling. I just don't think it's true. I think forgiveness and punishment have nothing to do with one another. I think that in theory, at least, punishment is about justice, but it is not about forgiveness. And we see this all the time. We see people forgiving perpetrators of crimes against them, and then the justice system deals with the punishment, the quote-unquote justice system deals with the punishment. But I just really think that it's important for us to resist the idea whenever we can. If they get punished, then I will be able to forgive them. I think Voldemort is using unsound logic here. (laughs) (laughs) Would not be the first time. No. No. (laughs) Yeah, I'm wondering what you think of this moment of you ask for forgiveness. I do not forgive. I want 13 years repayment before I forgive you. Part of me can't help but wonder whether he's saying this to himself as well, in the sense that Voldemort is so thrilled to see the Death Eaters back. He talks about them like a family. He uses this language of a chosen family, which really struck me just as an aside, because that's something that the queer community has often talked about, right? You have your queer family if your own family has rejected you in some way. And that's certainly the case with Voldemort. He has rejected his own family as much as they rejected him. But there's something really intimate about the way he understands his relationship with these Death Eaters. So in the moment when they're all returning, is he saying this to Avery, I do not forgive, I do not forget, to steal his heart in some way? This is conjecture in its wildest sense, but part of me does wonder, is there a part of him that longs for intimacy and connection and friendship and familial love in this moment of being reunited? And the way he breaks that and reasserts his tyrannical, you know, Lord Voldemort identity rather than Tom, a friend, is by crucioing Avery and then saying, you know, I I do not forgive. I do not forget. How amazing would it be if everyone returned and he was like, can you help me put on my robe? Yeah. Like, guys, I missed you. I'm so sad. Where were you? I'm so sorry that I didn't build enough trust. I know. In you, that you would feel like you wanted to come find me. I failed as a leader. I wanted to do better. I had 13 years to reflect, and these are the things I would do differently. (laughs) It's time for our spiritual practice, and I believe, Vanessa, it's Chavruta time. Woo! 
Um, so here's my question for you. Mm. Something that we as a society love are like great survival stories, right? Mm. Like I think we just get very impressed by people who will do anything to survive. Mm. I mean, and I was obviously specifically thinking about my grandparents and how they get treated like heroes for surviving. And I'm wondering why we do that. And I think that we really see it with Harry. Harry is the boy who lived, and he is a hero just for the fact that he survived. So I'm wondering, in this moment in which we are judging Voldemort for everything that he did to survive, why it is that Harry is a hero for that same thing? And then the answer that I have is that Harry obviously didn't need to hurt anybody in order to survive, but I'm just not sure that that's heroic. Why is that heroic? Yeah, it's interesting that we don't call him the boy who survived or even the boy who lives, but we say the boy who lived. I'm just thinking what it would mean if those titles were different. Living is so miraculous. On the days that I do do my morning meditation time, like my first gratitude is like for this day that there's a moment to just celebrate this being aliveness. But that's hard to do when you're constantly alive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that is so interesting and helpful, right? We love that Harry survived because he could have died. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, oh, it's precious. And it reminds us right. of the preciousness of our own lives. Right. I wonder if there's something in that that we lionize people's survival because it, it somehow makes us feel less vulnerable to the world and to death, which is an inevitability. If we engage with people suffering and death, then it makes us less secure in our own experience. I have a very good friend who in her 20s had cancer, and it, it, it was scary. It was stage two or three, and she got out of it and went into remission, and she went through a terrible depression mm -hmm. because she was like, when I was sick, I had such an appreciation of every day of life, and I wanted to suck the marrow out of every day of life. And I thought that if I survived, suddenly I would be like, yeah. now I'm going to be something different. And like being something different is hard. She's like, what am I going to do? Like go to medical school? I'm 26. I don't want to do that. And I think that might be why we lionize survivors is because we don't live with them. We just think about them for a second. And while we're thinking about them, we get this moment of rush of like life is precious and survival is important. But when you're just sort of there, I can tell you like my grandparents were not heroic people. They were lucky people. Right. Well, and I think this is the beauty of the book in the sense that we see the whole magical world, the readers of the newspapers, the Colin Creevies, even other students in the school look at Harry in that way. And what is so special about Ron and Hermione is that they see that and they see the 99% of the rest of who Harry is and what his story is about. And you know what? Oh, this is so helpful, Vanessa. No one has that for Voldemort. Like no one sees that part of him and maybe never did. Even Dumbledore engages with him as a student because he's an excellent wizard, because he has such power. I wonder, has anyone ever, did anyone ever see Voldemort or Tom in that way? Yeah, maybe Jenny. In the diary. In the diary. Oh, my God. But it was, like, way too late. I think that that's a really interesting point that I think when we laud survivors I'm wondering if the thing to do is actually to be grateful for the reminder that survival matters mm. 
but not to make them heroic. We have to choose what it is that makes people heroic in our eyes. And for me, it's like people who are incredibly compassionate and activist. And Well, even they, I mean, I think of Dorothy Day saying, don't let them make me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. So I think actually heroicism as an ideal is inherently suspect. It's time for our voicemail, and this week we get to hear from Rachel Diebner. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. My name is Rachel, and I have a question for you guys. I read somewhere that one of you said something to the effect of, if you love something and it makes you a better person, you should treat it as sacred in your life. So how do we take the methods we've learned from this podcast and reading Harry Potter and apply them to very different things like running or painting or reading a book for the very first time? If you have an answer or thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Thanks. Rachel, that is just one of my favorite questions in the whole world. We believe that in order to treat something as sacred, you have to have faith that the more time that you do it, the more gifts it will give you. So the more time that you run, not necessarily in length of your runs, but like maybe over months or years, as long as you don't injure yourself, the more you ritualize that and even do it on the days that it's hard, you have to have faith that it will continue to give you gifts even when it is difficult. Then the second step that we say is necessary to treat something as sacred is rigor. And so by rigor, what we mean on the podcast are the sacred practices that we do, the rituals of gathering, the three of us in the studio. We've ritualized the reading that we do ahead of time. We have a document where we write notes. All of that is rigor that we put towards this process. And then the third thing that we say is community, that you find other people to do it with. And again, I mean, for us, we have a community of three where we gather, and then we have our listener community. And we've really, to some extent, started our whole company, Not Sorry Productions, to answer this question. You know, we're doing pilgrimages to think about how we can walk sacredly, you know, when we set aside the time, but also just when we walk through the world. And we're starting writing retreats where we're going to ask the question of, like, how can writing be like a prayer? How can it be a sacred practice in our lives? And obviously, our podcast is about reading as a sacred practice. So I really do believe that if you go to a baseball game and think of it as a sacred practice, you can enrich that practice for yourself. I think there's some, like, goal setting in mind of, like, do you want to do this to be compassionate? Do you want to do this to be empathetic, to be forgiving? What are you doing this in order to be? But we're really excited to be expanding our programming to demonstrate that we believe that this can be done throughout your life. So Casper, now it's time for blessings. Who would you like to bless this week? I'm going to bless Wormtail. I mean, he's done despicable things. But in this moment, in this scene, he's so helpless and kind of pathetic. And He's so conscious that he has just been used, that he is a piece of machinery that's been tossed to the side and is no longer relevant. You know, the moment when he presents his stubby arm that's bleeding and Voldemort just says, no, the other one, and then calls the Death Eaters together, it's just heartbreaking. And so for anyone who feels like they've been used and just tossed aside and that their only value was for something that wasn't even really about them, I guess this blessing is for you. How about you? I'm going to bless Lily. Voldemort is, you get a sense that he's been thinking about her over the last 13 years. 
Because he's like, this was old magic, and I forgot about it. And I think that we often can take for granted the most basic forms of love in our lives. It's the easiest form of love to forget about, the kind that's always there. And Lily's love is, like, still there. And this is the immortality that I believe in, that if you love someone, they will remember you and carry it with them. And it'll touch them, which will touch the world. And so I want to just bless Lily for loving her son so much that, like, it has gotten Voldemort to contemplate love. Mm. That is how much she loved Harry. I just think love is a really radical act. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. You can also send us a voicemail by recording one on your phone or computer and emailing us at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 34, Priori Incantatum, through the theme of grief, and we'll have a very special guest, Professor Reverend Dr. Matthew Potts. This episode is produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Terkyle, and the wonderful Vanessa Sultan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Rachel Deepner for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. Thank you, everyone. Bye. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Slytherin Salazar. Wrong way around. (laughs) Sorry. You want to try it again? Yeah. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lord Voldemort. And I have risen. It's so nice of you, Ariana, to wear him on your body. (laughs) To give him access to the back of your skull. No, I have my own body now. (laughs) (laughs) Within the Wires is an immersive fiction podcast by Janina Mathewson and Night Vale co-creator Jeffrey Craner. Each season, we unfold a brand new story strictly via found audio from an alternate 20th century. Season 4, The Cradle, is a story about a mother and daughter as they attempt to lead a family-centric commune surviving on the fringes of society. Subscribe to Within the Wires at nightvalepresents.com or wherever you get your podcasts.